This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Tis the season for snow days. Kids and teachers love them, right? Why snow days can be so disruptive. Plus, retirement. Yeah, if you're a young teacher, you're probably not thinking about it much, but our teachers say you need to start, like, now. Also, homework in kindergarten. Is that too young? Our teachers have some strong opinions. All those topics, plus kids these days, on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. Used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I'm a teacher at an alternative school, elementary level, K through five. And welcome back, I should say. Thank you. It's nice (laughs) to be here. Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I am a high school chemistry teacher. And Bakari Ukuu, the third person at the table, what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are public school educators in the Kansas City area, and we are still trying to keep warm a week after our blizzard. Yes, it was literally severe winter weather hit Kansas City this week, where No Wrong Answers tapes throwing local school schedules into chaos. And it should be said, wintry weather rolled over big swaths of the country, not just the Midwest. Kansas City Public Schools and many charter schools in the city itself did not open for three straight days because of persistently poor road conditions in the city. That, even as many suburban schools went back to session after just one or two canceled days. Meanwhile, in Chicago, where many of our teachers are based, a winter storm knocked out power to tens of thousands of people. Several schools resumed classes even though their power was not back on and parents got upset that their kids were sitting in unheated dark classrooms. Bad weather puts schools, especially it should be said, schools that serve low-income students in a catch-22. Either you cancel class and lose precious instructional time, or you ask kids to come to school in circumstances that are less than ideal for learning and even potentially dangerous. So are snow jays just another form of educational inequity? And if so, can anything be done about it? Are we just stuck with the bad weather? From a teacher's perspective, from a from a learning perspective, what what is an appropriate criteria for calling a snow day? We've got so many kids that are walking to school. You've got little people as well as secondary kids out on the road. You've got student drivers coping with the conditions. You've got buses making multiple routes. You've got kids standing out at bus stops. So you've got to look at temperature. You've got to look at the conditions. You've got to look at if you can get them home safely. So it's, it's a tough call. I know my district starts very early, and having that information early is helpful for parents. So often the kids end up at home unsupervised. Yeah, and I definitely echo, I think safety obviously is the number one consideration. Are we able to get buses on the road safely? Is that going to create safety issues for our students, those who have to stand on the bus stop, those who are walking, those who are driving? Another consideration that districts take into place is, will students be able to be supervised while at home? So, like, what is the city doing? What is the conditions of the city? And I think even that goes beyond, like, a snow day. I think about, like, when we won the World Series. Like, initially, our district was like, we're not calling off, but the city shut down, so we obviously had to as well. There's no way that we could have got buses on the streets in a way that would have facilitated getting enough kids to school to make it a worthwhile day. One other piece as part of a criteria committee from before, which was buses starting in the morning. That was Mm -hmm. always a big piece. So oftentimes people... 
people look at the weather and they go, well, the weather's really bad. Well, it often comes time to whether or not the buses will be able to start and get running in the morning, especially on a cold day. And then we had an incident God, a few years ago where a student was killed, and that really kind of altered wow. the way. In ways. what way? What do you mean? It was more of country roads, but a car slid off the road, and, and the student was, was, was killed in an accident. And since that moment, school districts have become... Before that, it seemed as if they would take a risk or a chance to get kids into school because they wanted to be in the learning environment, and they wanted to be able to continue the studies and add those days on at the end of the year. But when that happened, there was just a, a fundamental shift in the way administrators thought about canceling school. There is some research I, I'm going to get into a little bit more detail about, but I do want to ask you as teachers, do you think there are negative or even, I mean, positive, are there just impacts, academic impacts from snow days? I think if you have multiple days, you absolutely have an impact because you get you disrupt that rhythm and the routine. Mm-hmm. The entire plan is offset for that week and even the week following because you're then playing catch up and trying to review, and mm-hmm. especially for elementary kids. I know it looks different secondary, but the elementary kids particularly feel that, I think, and, and struggle to find their feet again under them. Well, the research that I did reference, uh, it's from Joshua Goodman, a former teacher, and he's now a professor of public policy at Harvard. He published a study in 2015 that looked at this question about the effect of snow days academically on students. He examined test scores and attendance data from Massachusetts public schools between 2003 and 2010, and he found that the number of snow days did not seem to have an impact on student achievement, at least based on standardized test scores. But what he did find was the effect of something he called bad weather absenteeism, That is, student achievement suffered more when schools remained open during snowy days because more kids were gone and fell behind what happened in school. At least that was what he surmised based on the numbers that he found. So what about this idea that kids staying home on snowy days when school is in session, schools have decided to try to tough it out, that actually being more harmful than just canceling school? From a a teacher's perspective, why would that be the case if you've ever been in that situation before? It's harder as a teacher when you've got half your class Mm -hmm. in class I mean, that takes days and days. I often find myself, we'll just do something completely different on that day. And I look at it as just an overall attendance issue, especially in science or math. Your information compounds itself from lesson to lesson, regardless if it's a snow day and you stay home because of bad weather or it's just a normal day and you stay home. You're, you're missing vital information that is a necessity for you to be successful in the class. Yeah, one final point before we leave this uh, discussion, Jason and Rebecca, you are out two days Bakari. In Kansas City itself, you were out three days. Mm -hmm. There were some other districts across the state line in Kansas, suburban districts that were out only one day. Did this blizzard reveal to you any hidden educational inequities in how snow days are called or the impacts of snow days? Do you you think snow days are unequal? I don't have an answer to that. I think it's pretty even. Because the administrators are coordinating and because they see what's happening around, I, I think it comes out pretty well equal from a fundamental standpoint do like our snow days they're not intentional obviously there's nothing something we we can actively control the weather but i will say they impact people differently given the resources and given the structures of different systems they're going to impact that system differently and so when we hear inequity we think of like intentionality behind more like racism or discrimination or marginalization to some extent i think it definitely impacts those who are from a lower socioeconomic standpoint significantly more than it does those who are middle class or upper middle class i think about even just like the way the city handles the snow removal in and of itself. Like there's this large conversation around Missouri versus Kansas and the way they they handle snow removal and and ice removal on streets. And so I think that if we had a system that 
was effectively removing those obstacles from buses being on the on the streets and like getting kids in classrooms and we would have had less snow days. And so I think from a systemic standpoint, the way that we respond to those things sometimes highlight the inequities in the system and the, like the the lack of awareness. But I don't think the snow day itself necessarily is an inequitable thing. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Retirement isn't what it used to be, or rather, for many of us, it isn't what it was going to be. At least that's the fear. Many state teacher pension systems face a looming funding crisis and are taking steps to alter how they pay out benefits. In many cases, like in Kentucky and Pennsylvania, for instance, states have started giving their teachers so-called hybrid retirement plans, which combine elements of traditional defined benefit pensions with 401k-style investments. Since the 2008 financial crisis, all but two states have passed some type of pension reform, which typically involves taking steps like reducing benefits or raising the retirement age. Illinois' situation, just to highlight one, is particularly acute. The pension system there faces a $130 billion shortfall and currently has funds to cover roughly half of its future obligations. At the same time, our society's conception of retirement may be changing. The Harvard Business Review recently published a piece by Paul Irving. He's the director of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, and he argues retirement, as we have conceived of it for decades, is, in his words, going extinct. More and more Americans, he say, face the prospect of working until they are very elderly or even, hate to say it, until they're dead. But also, Irving says many Americans nowadays want to keep working until they're older or are able to keep working until they're older. So what's it like for teachers? And we should say this is the conversation that Jason Staliga was born for. <laughs> do, you, do you quickly want to explain? I think actually all three of you have your own areas of expertise, but Jason, do you quickly want to explain why you're such an expert in teacher pensions? So I'm a trustee for the uh, public school public education employee retirement systems of Missouri. We manage roughly $45 billion in funds. We are the 44th largest pension fund in the country and one of the top 100 pension funds in the world. I was like, you've never said that before. <laughs> never, not. not. Uh, and Bakari, we should say as well, you actually also know a lot about pensions because? I'm also a trustee, but on the Kansas City Public Schools Retirement System, which encompasses both our district charter and libraries in Kansas City Metro. So both of you uh, make decisions about the pension systems that you and your colleagues are in. And I will just put my cards on the table. You all know much more about this than I do, but it is a topic that I think does not get talked about a lot, both within the teaching realm and I think maybe just in general retirement. It can often be arcane and, dare I say, boring, though, Jason, I mean no offense. I love it. I love every moment of it. Uh, So let me just start the conversation by asking this. What are you all expecting from your retirement? I know because there's a lot of fear out there about what what retirement could look like in the future. What are you all expecting for your retirement? As the member who's probably closest to it, (laughs) I'm I'm in my three-year window. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. I know. Thank you. That's exciting. And I will have to say, I'm, I, I'm I, might have, I might have to, to, to jump in every once in a while and get for definitions. So when you t- say three-year window, you are... Under under the rules of, of my retirement, I will be eligible to start accessing my benefits within three years. Okay. I, I expect from my retirement plan predictability. 
Mm-hmm. I want to be able to depend on what I've been told I will receive over a 30-year career. For, for Bakari and Jason, you guys have, have helped to manage um, some, some of the pension systems that you and your colleagues work for. How do you feel about where you all are at? I feel good about where we're at and where we're going. Right now, my retirement system is about 69%, 70% uh, fully funded, and we're making steps to make sure that we get toward 100% fully funded, but we're in a pretty solid space right now. I definitely expect to get the benefit that um, our system outlines and get it for the duration of my life as long as I qualify for it. Jason? So a defined benefit is a benefit given to you monthly for the rest of your life. And when Bakari talks about funding ratios, Mm -hmm. what that means right now is that KCPS has 69 cents on the dollar to pay every benefit moving forward to those that are promised a benefit for the rest of their lives. And the public school retirement system, PSRS peers, uh, we are at 84% funded status. I mean, we have 84 cents. And on just to make every it dollar. precisely clear, you're working for the system that governs all schools in Missouri outside of Kansas City and St. Louis. That is correct. And then Bakari works in the system that governns just Kansas City public schools and the charter schools within that district. And as right. well as the libraries. And the libraries. Yeah. yeah, we cover 535 districts across the state. So other uh, pension systems, I think, are facing a, a much more tenuous situation. So why is your system, um, besides your expert management, <laughs> <laughs> Why is your system uh, in its position that's in now where you, where you feel, or at least you're expressing a lot of confidence going forward in, in what you're going to be able to promise and, 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 and then carry through for your teachers? I'd be re- remiss to not say that our investment staff has done mm-hmm. a phenomenal job of maintaining and growing our monies for the system. You have to look at it from a very large picture. Some pension systems across the country are based or, or rely upon the legislature in order to pay funds into their system. So when you start looking at Illinois or you start looking at pension systems like New Jersey, there is a defined amount of money that that system should receive every year. And the actuary goes in and looks at those contributions and then predicts based upon a discount rate or assumed rate of return how much money will be compounded upon those deposits that are made by the legislature. And what we saw, especially during the economic boom in the mid-2000s was that a lot of legislatures were pooling money from the retirement system. Mm -hmm. Let's say you were assuming a rate of return of 10%. Well, they were getting maybe 15% or 16%. And so the the legislature was like, well, wait a second. We don't need to put in that, the amount of money that we owe the system because you're making those returns. The key point is is that when we project out how much money we're going to have over the long term, we're, we're projecting out not only the the contributions that are coming into the system, but also that growth or that assumed rate of return. And so for a large period of time, those legislatures cut back the amount of money that was going into the system. Well, just imagine a billion dollars not compounded over, you know, 30 or 40 years of, your, of the lifetime of that fund. And so that caused your, your funding ratio to go down. So that was, the, that was one, one part of it. And then in 2008, we had the crash. Right. And so now budgets were hit across the country in terms of state. And so all that time where they weren't putting in the money when they had it, then they asked themselves, well, where can I get this money from? And To pay for other things. To pay for other yeah. things. And they said, well, we could take it from the pensions. So now not only did you, did you miss out the opportunity to grow the money when the market was booming, now you're taking money away when they need it the most to reinvest. Because as the markets plunge, you can invest that money into other opportunities in public equity or private equity and use that money to grow over the course of time. And what we saw was a large decrease in the funding ratios across the country. And I think at some point it was between 40 and 50 percent on average. You are in a relatively advantageous position, but like if someone's listening to this who is not in Missouri, I mean, how 
how worried should young teachers be about not possibly getting their full defined benefit? Even when I first became a teacher, and I'm not that far in, it just wasn't on my radar at all until I got on the retirement board and really started learning more about it. Now, we've been more intentional as a system so that we are educating people very early on. So that's we're part of the orientation now for new hires within the district. And it's not just teachers because it's anyone who works in the public school system. And so whether you're an administrator or a secretary or a teacher, you're paying into the retirement system. And so I think that it's important that we do, we are very much more intentional about retirement planning, especially given the fact that there are so many changes across the country and it's, it's very state driven. It's important that teachers across know what their states are doing and like what their retirement plan is doing as well and knowing how they need to supplement because some people may have to supplement given their current funding ratios and the projected funded ratio. And two of the major types of reforms that you often hear across the country is age of ability to retire. Mm -hmm. So that, that point at which you can retire. In Missouri, it's 29 years or rule of 80. So at 29 years, you can have full retirement and then there's early out, which is 25 and out at any point, and then five years um, at, at 60 years or older. The second part is the COLA, which is the cost of living adjustment. Some of that is dictated by legislature. Some of that is dictated by the boards that run uh, educational retirement systems. Uh, a COLA just simply says that it guarantees an increase. This year, Social Security got a 2.88 uh, like Basically increase. to match inflation. Yeah, to match yeah, inflation. Yeah. But you know, just for our system alone, it's approximately $500 million dollars over the course of 30 years. You, you roll it in over the course of 30 years. But every time we give a 2% COLA, that costs the system almost a half a billion dollars. Now, imagine you're in a system like Ohio or California where you have CalPERS is over $350 billion. So just that impact of the number of people who are part of that system and the cost but if you of don't that make that, But if you don't make that adjustment, then the people who are going to be getting their defined benefit 30 years from now might not have enough to live on. Well, yeah, that's correct. So <laughs> what will happen is if you, every time you give a COLA, you, you reduce your funding ratio. The magic number out there is about 80%. And when you fall below the 80%, some people may uh, debate 70%. That's when you kind of get put on a watch list. So you're put on like this. The public becomes aware of the fact that your, that your funding ratio is, is lower than where it needs to be. If oh, I could ahead. just interject yeah. about the new educators, having this conversation rings every bell that I have and I'm interested in it because I'm old and I'm close to it. But when you've got a new educator who's just out of college with their degree, they're 25 years old, they don't hear this. And they're not thinking of a 30-year career. And mm -hmm. we know that they're probably not going to stay for 30 years, which has a fundamental impact on the systems as well. So it's a really difficult conversation to have with new educators to do that planning, to do that forecasting. Well, I'm the test case for that because before I got into radio, I taught for 10 years and I taught in three different states. Good luck with that math. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I understand well, no, that. Well, yeah, I mean, so I, I was, I was a, moving I, I, from classroom I, to classroom and gig to gig. I briefly is, participated right. in three different state pension systems, which I've now all, I mean, just to be transparent, I, I've now put them all together in the same, I've, I've consolidated the, you know, the money that I earned from those, from that time. But there's a lot of teachers, I mean, that that's, I think more so than when you started, Rebecca, I think that's more of a trend. Teachers moving around, moving from district to district, even state to state, or not staying in the profession. And that's what I was going to say. That yeah. not staying in the profession also impacts the way that we're funded and the way that we can distribute funds as well. Because at least in my system, we have a lot of conversations around that it takes five years to be vested. And so 
we're not seeing teachers who are staying for those five years. And so they can keep their money there or they can take their money with them. And oftentimes we see them taking their money with them. And so that definitely impacts. And so that's the conversation that we have. And then when we're also having more conversations around charters and district. And like we, we're starting to see significantly more members in our charter systems who are not who don't feel that's connected to the retirement system. Um, and so all of that plays. In, and we are in a very unique situation where we actually have more retirees than we have um, active wow. members. So when we talk, when we think about just like the layout of schools and like the layout of the city, that definitely impacts the way that benefits and retirement can work within yeah. a specific space. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bakari, I'm, I'm part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he brought up a good point about contributions, though. Mm. Contributions are an extreme, a extremely important part. Uh, we know that research that was done in California says that if teachers stay beyond five years, they're more likely to stay for 30. Mm-hmm. And so it's really creating structures within the school system in order for them to stay longer and to get to that point where they have that, that comfortability within the classroom. People do expect to have an encore career. People expect to finish their teaching career and then do something else. And that can look like more teaching, that can look like uh, mentoring, that can look like many other things. But people do expect to continue working on top of receiving this benefit. I don't know anyone um, in my circles that retire and then are retired. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's probably true for younger teachers as well. They expect to do something after. For for me, I can retire at 51 with a full benefit for the rest of my life. And that's based on my highest three consecutive years of salary. And so a lot of teachers will go to Kansas and teach. A lot of teachers will like work after retirement, which we call war. uh, And there's a certain cap there, but they can go back into the school districts and work um, up to a percentage of pay in order to make extra money. For me, you know, it's really as a as a as now a veteran teacher of 16 years, you know, I see the I see the light now. And you know, to Bakari's point, you know, getting getting back into getting with those teachers at the very beginning of the school year, talking to them about what those benefits are going to be, talking about what vest and like what to to what it means to vest within a system, but also to teach them that the longer you work, it's really there's a diminishing return to that as well. And so we really actually want to encourage our teachers to step out of the classroom right around 30 or 31 so we can bring those new teachers in who are going to be able to then for the next 30 years of their career. When uh, you say 30 to 31, 31 years in the classroom. 31 years yeah, in the classroom, not, yeah. Not the age 30. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Years in the classroom. <laughs> but clarify. No, but, but to be able to get those new teachers in because that's really where those contributions are going to come from because the salaries are going to be higher when they start. And so that means that they're going to end up putting more money into the system as yeah. we grow it. What about, what would you say to a, a teacher, because we do have a lot of uh, listeners now in Illinois, what would you say to a teacher who is in a state where there is a real... I think, looming crisis in terms of funding for pensions. Um, and you might be a young teacher in a state like that where it's it's very real to think that maybe your defined benefit would not be there or at least would not be there in its full amount by the time you retire. Well, Illinois is a non-Social Security paying state. So uh, the first, typically Illinois salaries are higher than uh, other salaries throughout the country. And so to Rebecca's point before, I would highly encourage them to start a second retirement system. Like an IRA. By an IRA or a 403B or a 457 and start putting away what that percentage would be of Social Security into that additional account. That's that's what I've done over the course of my career. And then two, their benefit is constitutionally granted. And so that benefit cannot be diminished or changed. It's a promised benefit to them. And there's been a lot of challenges in court over that and the courts have overturned it. And so for those teachers, you know, it's really thinking about and advocating if they understand it, reform – 
that will then give them an opportunity to have that benefit for the rest of their lives. The biggest fear that, you know, I think those teachers may have would, would be that system going bankrupt and what impact that's going to have on them for the rest of their lives. Uh, is it just a matter of, of, of time before a young teacher, you know, realizes or can fully grasp the, the importance of, you know, their retirement savings? Like you say, like when they come into the when they come into the profession at twenty three, twenty four, Rebecca, you said earlier, and they get that first paycheck and they realize how much of their paycheck has been taken out, and when they're twenty three or twenty four, they don't like that. Is it just a matter of just staying in until you see that light, or is there a, a way to make it click earlier? I think one of the things I'm I'm hearing and I'm actually going to take back. We actually have a board meeting tomorrow, and I'm going to take back the timing of those conversations really matter as well. And I think actually orientation is not the best place for that to take place because as a new teacher, you're overwhelmed and inundated with enough like so much information already that retirement is not even going to fall on the priority list. Of I got to set my classroom up, I got to figure out who my students are. Like that is not a priority. I think once we get into the school year and once you find yourself like getting, I think actually like year two is probably more of a more accurate space and like toward the end end of year one where you actually have the capacity to even begin to think through what is being presented to you. And as an individual, not as a trustee, whenever I'm talking to new teachers, I always ask them like, what is their plight in life? Mm -hmm. I know that, I know that sounds weird, but like, you know, are their parents wealthy? What is their financial outcome looking forward into the future? Mm-hmm. And I know that that might seem weird to talk to a new teacher, but it, but that helps them make that decision of whether or not, you know, as far as this defined benefit goes, do they need supplemental mm-hmm. money on to the side of that, or will they be okay? And I and I think sometimes, often, oftentimes we don't think about that. We don't think about our future or what might come in down the line. And so that, that I always try to get them to steer whether or not they should start a secondary account or not start a, or when they should start it in order to make sure that they're financially stable moving forward. Because the probably for Rebecca and for myself and for Picard, the greatest expense we're going to have when we retire is health care. And so we have to be able to make sure that on top of the benefit that we're receiving, that we have some type of supplemental income in order to help cover those costs like dental and eye and, and uh, I mean, and, and what we're really speaking toward, too, is this financial literacy and like being aware of your financial circumstances and like being intentional about planning. And I think that goes beyond the teaching profession. The unique thing about teaching is that we have for so long just expected this predictable benefit that's going to take care of me when I'm older and I'm retired. Um, and now we're realizing that that's not always the case. And so I think it's just really increasing the financial literacy of our educators who may not have been as privy to those conversations and and as educated in that field prior to. Before we get to the headlines and kids these days, let's briefly touch upon one final topic, and it's a perennial one, homework. Yes, the fight over homework. What should it be? How much should be assigned? How young should it start? Continues as it has for years, decades, really, centuries even if you want. A recent Ed Week article posed this question kindergarten homework too much too early the reporting by marva hinton highlighted the growing trend of homework being assigned in kindergarten yes kindergarten one mother of a kindergartner in miami dade county public schools in florida in this article bemoaned her daughter receiving a weekly homework packet that included worksheets focused on things like phonics and spelling also quoted in this ed week article administrators for arlington traditional school a school that serves the county around arlington virginia they assign a mandatory 30 minutes of homework a night for their kindergartners 
15 of that has to be reading. If the kids cannot read yet independently, it can be 15 minutes of being read to by a parent. So that's just one possibly extreme case based on your viewpoint. But in general, is assigning a lot of homework, whether done by a teacher or a school or district, is that a sign of rigorous high expectations or age-inappropriate overkill? So we have a couple of... uh, teachers who work in secondary schools, a high school teacher, a middle school vice principal. We have an elementary school teacher here. Do you assign homework? And if you do, how much on average? I'll go first as the elementary person. I am anti-homework. I've never assigned it. I don't want it coming back. And I don't think it's my place to try to control that part of my students' lives. Having said that, (laughs) I Always send stuff home if families need that. There's stuff I don't get to during the day that goes home. They can take advantage of it. And I'm the first person in line to tell these kids, read something. Read something with a grown-up or an older kid at home. So that, I mean, I that, that's, I really, that's really the, the adamant nature of your, uh, mm-hmm. your philosophy comes down to yes. uh, you don't want to grade it. You don't have to collect it. You don't have to manage it. I work my kids really, really hard when they're in my class. And when they go home, they need to relax. They need to process what we did during that day. They need to talk with the folks at home. They need to read for pleasure, not for the upcoming reading autopsy that we do on our reading now. They need to relax and process and download for the next day, and I'm going to work them hard again. So um, so the idea of, of homework in kindergarten, you are probably... Uh, no, that, that offends me. <laughs> that That's deeply, deeply troubling, but I have... Just as many fifth graders, and I don't send it home with my fifth graders either. But I have expectations that fifth graders come back to school ready to work, and they have things they can do at home, and they know what they are. Probably slightly different in high school and middle school, your approach to homework, or not. Well, I no longer assign homework. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, you, you have stepped out of that role, Oops. yeah. Although I did. So when I taught sixth grade, I definitely did assign homework. I think that my philosophy on homework has shifted a little bit, though. I think that... I understand the the rationale behind homework if it's supposed to be based on giving kids additional independent practice to work on things and to uh, continue the learning process. I don't necessarily think that homework is the only way that can happen. I agree with Rebecca. I think for many people it actually just becomes um, more burdensome for the teacher to grade and to provide immediate feedback, and oftentimes they're not providing feedback to kids on their homework. It's just a, a matter of completion. I think if that's the case, then it's not value-add. I think every assignment that we put in front of kids should have a purpose and should be value-added, and, and if we're not going to take it and, and actually do anything with it, then we shouldn't be assigning it. I'm quite sure the nuns you taught me are rolling over in their graves when I say this. I was on the panel when we talked about homework the last time, and uh, I think I've had a pretty fundamental shift in it. Since that, since that episode? Yeah. What did you say then to remind— I was completely in favor of homework and the necessity of it in order to drive instructional mm. uh, abilities. And how long uh, ago was that? About a year ago. Yeah. I hardly give homework anymore. And it's, it's been a big shift for me. And it's, I don't find the homework burdensome. Actually, I enjoy grading a lot, but and maybe it's maybe it's because I switched schools. Um, I have never, that's what I was going to ask. I have to change the setting. I back. have never seen kids so classroom. stressed out in my life that it scares me Men- mentally. Stressed out. The students that you teach, the now. students that I teach now, that I look at the hours of homework that they do every day and the removal of just joy outside of school from their lives, and I, I think to myself, I don't want to compound that as a, as a teacher more than what needs to be done. And so the homework that I do give, like to Bakari's point, really deals around labs 
and the analytical nature, that is an extension of what we did in class. So whatever they don't have finished, that becomes the work that they have to do. But I also have discussions with them about what's their schedule like for the week. I'm not going to grade it that day. I mean, there's there's this idea that teachers give back their papers the next day. We don't, right? <laughs> they often sit in a bag for four or five days. So when is it when is it essential for that exactly. paper to be done and turned into me so that I can give you the feedback that you need? And so I've really prioritized what work I give them. I probably give them one assignment a week. So it's now it's really narrowing down that focus of, of what is essential. There's a subtext to what you're all saying, and, and um, it made me, th- Rebecca, which, which you said made me think, you, you know, you said um, you don't like assigning homework, but you do like suggesting things that, that kids could do or give them reading lists or whatever. There's like a difference between, so that really delineates the difference between, I, I guess, extrinsic and intrinsic learning motivation, because if you assign the homework, then they kind of feel like they have to do it, and that brings with it a different set of like their mental approach to actually doing the work. But if you don't assign it but are still like suggesting things for them to do or are talking with them like like Jason is doing, then there, there's still some sort of like intrinsic. Uh, there is. And I think what Jason said about knowing his kids is really important. That relationship that I have with my students, it has to come first. I have to know what's going on at home. How easy is that going to be for a student to get an assignment finished? Do they have access to what they need for it? If my student goes home and is alone for the evening, I I need to give him access, him or her access to activities they could do on their own. So that might look like an online math game or that might look like a video to watch on YouTube that they can do on their own and feel like they had that connection. But if they're at karate class and then dance class and then ball practice and, and they're not able to get to those assignments, that has to look different. So I have to have that relationship with my kids as well. Although I think I would push there because I feel like when we start talking about determining whether or not we're giving homework based on the activities kids engage in outside of school, that to me starts getting to a place of like inequity. It starts to come into play because I think about the conversation we often have when we think about just education in the terms of like suburban education versus urban education. I think oftentimes we hear these homework policies, these strenuous homework policies coming from a place that are supposed to be high expectations and we can't lower our expectations for these urban kids. And so everyone has to have an hour of homework at, at certain grade levels. And to catch up with your suburban exactly. peers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's, I don't, I'm not in favor of like a blanket one-size-fits-all homework policy. I definitely think, to Rebecca and Jason's point, that you do need to know your students. I think what what needs to be considered is also, like, the expectations and the the outcomes you're desiring based on that particular lesson of that day. I think homework needs to be relevant. It should not just be this, you get a packet at the beginning of, of the week, and then you got to turn it in by the end of the week, and it's not really connected to what we're learning on a day-to-day basis. So I think it needs to be uh, more fluid if you're assigning homework. And, and it goes back to Jason's point about being meaningful, right? Like, you can't just arbitrarily say, here, go do this packet, and then turn it in and expect that to increase outcomes for kids. And I think that's sometimes, when I hear homework, I feel like that's what is happening. Well, things we've learned about Jason today. He likes grading, and he gets really excited about talking about defined benefit plans. (laughs) (laughs) Love the DB. (laughs) Both good things. Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines.
Texas State Board of Education has approved new, streamlined social studies standards, a big deal considering Texas's outsized influence on the textbook industry. The new standards have been revised to say slavery played a, quote, central role in the lead-up to the Civil War. Previously, slavery had been listed as one of just a number of causes. Also, the revised standards retain mentions of Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller. After it had been reported, the board was considering removing them as possible topics of study. <laughs> Rebecca, what's that look on your face? I'm trying not to interrupt you, Mr. Palmer, no, no. <laughs> on either of those items. What right. is wrong with Texas? No, Hillary, they, they kept Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller in there. Thank you. <laughs> the fact that it was a conversation. That, that oh, it right. was yeah, in the news and that there was a possibility that someone sat in a room and discussed otherwise is outside my... Oh. I, yeah. Trouble. It seems that you... You appreciated the decision they came to. I'm glad to hear they are both included. A new national survey shows as many as one in 40 American children between the ages of 3 and 17 have now been diagnosed with autism. That number published in the journal Pediatrics is higher than the latest official rate of one in 59 reported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Either way, most researchers and health experts agree autism diagnosis is increasing due in part to more societal awareness of the condition and improving diagnostic methods. And declining birth rates predict a potentially grim future for some American schools. The Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education projects that overall K-12 school enrollment in the U.S. could drop by more than 8% over the next decade. And rural schools, already struggling with depopulation, many of them, are likely to be hardest hit by these potential declines. If it does come true, we're going to see massive changes, one education think tank researcher told the Heckinger Report. As he continued, he says, nobody is talking about this. Maybe we should start talking about it. Those are some of the headlines that we saw that came up in education news this past week. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Jason, what are your kids into? Educational Minecraft. They are into it. They are building. It's become a consumption of their lives. And we, uh, I asked you this off mic, but you, do you know the difference between educational Minecraft and then just the, the Minecraft game? Is there a difference? I know Tetris and Pong. So, no. Okay. I do. I am very jealous about the educational Minecraft. It's a great program. I'll just put it out there, a little commercial. So why there's, you... there's problems in, embedded in the work. So they build and then do a little problem. Then they get to build some more and then do a little problem. And they they know the mm. game, but now they know the game with some meat yeah. in is it. Is it designed for stuff. 16, 17, and 18-year-olds, or is it more designed for an elementary level? I have only worked with elementary kids oh. doing it, but I can see but you're saying where you're, it would get bigger for bigger kids. Jason, you're saying your high school kids are really interested. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. much so. And why why the sudden explosion, if, if it's been sudden? Uh, the district adopted a license for educational Minecraft. Oh. We're one-to-one, and... Uh, every kid had the opportunity to download it. 
And they took it. And they did. <laughs> and ran with it. And built it. And built it, yeah. Learn so, the game. Learn the You'll game. You'll enjoy it. Okay. I think you will enjoy it. All right. So you're saying there's some real, there's some real educational benefit to it, Rebecca. I'm going to say there is. Okay. <laughs> Jason looks like he needs some convincing. Uh, Bakari, what are your kids into? So similar to the tech piece, our kids have recently discovered the incognito browser on hmm. um, <laughs> Google. And so uh, apparently it can, like, work around blocked websites and hmm. such. And so they, they have gotten hip to that. So we've – that and then just posting things on YouTube. But YouTube is now the new. How did you How did you discover that they were into the incognito browsing? You know, reported by teachers. <laughs> yeah, we've seen an increase in in tech violations. <laughs> do yeah. we Do we know what they're looking at while they're incognito? Yeah, just like surfing websites and like just not playing games they shouldn't be on. So those sort of things. Rebecca. What are your kids into? We had a lot of conversation once we got back from our snow days about the Grinch. We now have a new version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. All the kids had seen the movie over their break. So it's um, already out. So it's it's out. Some of them have seen it. We've got the one before that. I'm a purist. The book is my favorite. And, you know, I grew, I grew up with the one from the 70s. That'll always be my favorite. But the fact that there are now four of them that we can talk about and compare pleases me a little bit. So this latest one is an animated version, right? It is. And, and who is the Grinch? Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. And so when you say four versions, there's that one, there's the Jim Carrey version. Jim Carrey, version. Thurl Ravencroft. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> and my cheeks got a little pink there anytime I can see Mr. Cumberbatch, even if he's green and animated. <laughs> yeah, he's the Grinch. What do you mean? <laughs> if that's okay with me. So they're all very, very different. Um, so we, we read the book in class and we talk about it and we all connect to it in our different ways. But tis the season. We got a new Grinch. Yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Jason Staliga, Bakari Uku'u, and Rebecca McIntosh. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>